is a production of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. It is made possible by grant funding from the Academy of Teaching Scholars at the University of Oklahoma. The views expressed in this podcast are based on the participants' research, but at times may re represent their expert opinion only. Thanks for joining us today. Our guest today is Dr. Landon Lorenz. Dr. Lorenz is an assistant professor in the Department of OBGYN and is a member of the American Society for Colposcopy and Cervical Pathology. He serves as a supervising faculty for our dysplasia clinic. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Lorenz. Thank you for having me, Dr. Smith. <clears throat> On the podcast today, I'd like to discuss high-grade cervical dysplasia. <clears throat> I recently saw this patient. We'll call her Victoria. Victoria is a 30-year-old with two small children. She presented after having a high-grade pap test, and she was found to have adenocarcinoma in situ, or AIS. Of course, she was very distressed when she presented and was afraid of having cancer. Is this something that's seen frequently in the dysplasia clinic, Dr. Lorenz? Well, about 5% of women who are screened for cervical cancer in the U.S. are found to have some kind of high-grade dysplasia. CIN 2 or 3, or high-grade squamous dysplasia, is most common in women aged 25 to 29. Adenocarcinoma in situ, or AIS, is a type of high-grade dysplasia arising from the glandular cells of the cervix. It's less common than squamous dysplasia historically, but we're seeing more and more of it than we have in the past. Victoria had a lot of questions about how she came to have this disease and what she could have done to prevent it. Can you speak a bit about the pathogenesis and development of cervical dysplasia? Yes. Infection with high-risk types of human papillomavirus, or HPV, is necessary but not sufficient factor in the development of cervical dysplasia. In other words, almost all women with a high-grade dysplasia do have infection with HPV, most having one of the 13 intermediate or high-risk types. However, we know that most women are exposed to HPV in their lifetime, and more than 50% of them will clear that infection in a time frame of 6 to 18 months. So, infection with HPV alone does not result in dysplasia. You must have persistent high-risk HPV infection and usually some other contributing factors such as increased age, being a smoker, or other health complications that disrupt the normal immune system. Well, Victoria told me she was going to her gynecologist every year. Is it possible that her pap tests were missing something that was there the whole time? Well, the traditional PAP testing isn't perfect. About 12,000 women each year will be diagnosed with cervical cancer, and 4,000 of them will die from their disease. Most of these women have not had a PAP test in the last five years, either due to access to health care or some other reason. We begin screening for cervical cancer at age 21 because cancers in women under this age are very rare, on the order of 1 in 500,000. We screen women up to the age of 30 with pap tests alone every three years. Screening more frequently in this population only decreases the cancer risk to 3 out of 1,000 from about 5 to 8 out of 1,000 and doesn't increase the risk of death from cervical cancer. 
The pap test only has a sensitivity of about 60 to 80%, so it will miss some disease. We also know that the risk of cervical cancer increases with age, so we start doing co-testing at the age of 30 and try to detect these changes in the cervix earlier. I don't think Victoria had any co-testing. Can you explain to our audience what co-testing is and, and why you're recommending it in women over 30? Sure. Co-testing is when cytology, or a pap smear test, and high-risk HPV testing is done simultaneously. Okay, so once you decide to do an excisional procedure, how do you decide between that colonization you spoke about and the LEAP procedure? Well, there's a few subtle differences. Uh, LEAP procedure can be done in the office. While it may require slightly more local anesthesia than something like cryotherapy, the complication rate and morbidity is not increased from other ablative techniques. For most patients, a LEAP is sufficient treatment. However, patients with adenocarcinoma in situ have lesions that can extend high into the endocervical canal, and determining negative margin status is important to determine what our overall cure rate is and what kind of surveillance needs to happen going forward. So having a conization specimen that is larger and does not have a thermally treated margin is helpful for the patient and determining what, what uh, treatment needs to be done going forward. Other reasons you would perform a conization would be if you have a high suspicion for invasive disease or if a previous LEAP procedure failed to remove the dysplasia or if the cervix is too short or other technical factors prevent you from safely performing a LEAP procedure in the office. Okay. Once my patient, Victoria, has her conization, what's the next step? Is she cured? Well, the standard of care for patients with adenocarcinoma in situ is to rule out invasive disease and then proceed with hysterectomy. To adequately rule out a cancer, the patient should have a cone biopsy evaluated by a pathologist who is familiar with the diagnosis and a determination that there's no invasive component and that the margins around the specimen are negative. Well, what if you can't get negative margins? Well, then you should repeat the cone. Okay, so my patient's done having children, um, and if she has a, negative, a cone with negative margins, she'll proceed with hysterectomy. But what about patients who are diagnosed with this who aren't done having children and want to maintain their fertility? Well, you have to be careful with these patients and explain to them that hysterectomy is the standard of care for this disease. 
If they choose to deviate from this, we follow them very closely. They should still have negative margins on their comb biopsy, and then they're followed, at least initially, with a PAP test, a high-risk HPV test, and endocervical curatage, along with colposcopy every six months. Wow, that's a lot. Why so many tests and follow-up? Well, adenocarcinoma in situ and invasive adenocarcinoma are unique because they can present with skip lesions. This means that although we have negative margins on our specimen, there's about a 7 to 10% chance of having a dysplasia higher in the endocervical canal than the specimen was. We know from European studies that high-risk HPV testing is the most sensitive way to detect residual or recurrent disease, followed by the ECC and PAP testing, which aren't that helpful. This makes sense because we know that pap testing is less sensitive when it comes to the detection of adenocarcinoma and glandular lesions. Wow. Thank you, Dr. Lorenz. This was really informative. Is there anything else we should take home from this talk? Well, it's important to remember that most women who are diagnosed with cervical cancer and have not been screened with pap testing or high-risk HPV testing have been seen in the healthcare system. In fact, they usually have been seen multiple times in some settings. So it's important to remember and ask the patient uh, when her last pap test was, and if you're in doubt or if the patient is in doubt to when or where it was done, choose the appropriate screening test for your patient. Thanks again, Dr. Lorenz. Well, that's all we have for you today. If you'd like a copy of the transcript from today's podcast, or if you have questions or comments, please email me at katie-smith at ouhsc.edu. That's katie, K-A-T-I-E, dash smith, S-M-I-T-H, at ouhsc.edu. Stay tuned for further podcasts from the Department of OBGYN here at the University of